0: excited about the idea because i just knew that would be really funny for me and my friends to do i didn't think anyone on earth else would care
1: welcome and thank you for listening to almost almost famous the podcast where actors writers comedians talk about the ups and downs ebbs and flows of working towards making this crazy biz and how they're almost almost famous i'm your host daniel acker today's guest is started in bridesmaids key and peel community the mini project and written for saturday night live the last og Last Man Standing, and is currently a writer on the reboot of The Wonder Years. He is also the creator of the amazing and hilarious improv show, The Black Version. It is the incomparable Jordan Black.
0: Thank you. How are you doing, Daniel?
1: I'm doing well. It's good to see you. You too. Very impressive resume I just ran through, but not surprising at all. As someone who has acted and written, and we've talked about this a little bit, is there one that you find you gravitate more towards? Is it just kind of depend or where was your mind state with all of it?
0: Early in my career, it was definitely acting. I gravitated towards acting. That was my passion, my joy, everything. I just loved it so much. And I would write more as a, um, I kind of considered my writing career, like my day job. Mm-hmm. and I, which, And I also hated it. So I hated writing. I hated being, being staffed. I hated going to an office, sitting in a room with a bunch of like, most of the time older people, because I was young than Daniel. Most of the people older than me, these vets, and I'm sitting there going like, I'm just buying time until I can become a star. So I wasn't really focused on like, let me learn how to be a TV writer or whatever. Um, so I really didn't enjoy it in the beginning of my career, in the early aughts. So then I eventually I quit taking writing jobs after, um, after a few years. And I just focused on my acting, which I loved. And I just did that. And then about, I don't know, I want to say maybe five or six years ago, I got offered a, to write for Uncle Buck uh, on ABC with Mike Epps. And I still was in the, it had probably been like 12 years since I've been in a writer's room. So I still was just like, still suffering the same PTSD. Like, I don't know if I want to be in a writer's room. I don't enjoy it. You know, it was him and hawing about it. And a friend of mine who's a TV writer, was, I was talking to him on the phone one day and he's like, oh, are you going to take the job? With-? You know, I, I started to say something like, well, you know, I'm thinking about it, but before I could even finish my thought, he could tell where I was going. It was like, Jordan, it's a staff writing job on a network show. And for some reason, it clicked to me that, like, who do you think you are to turn down a staff writing job on a network show, you dummy? And it was like, just from that moment, I was like, yes, I'm taking the job. Yes, I'm going to take it. Done. I'll take the job. Took the job, and I had so much fun. And what I learned was, in the, and I know this is a long winded uh, answer, but too bad. We're recording now. There's nothing you can do about it. But what I learned is that in those ensuing years of not writing, I had gained a lot more confidence just you know, just from performing and being in the industry for so long, I came into that writer's room with a lot more confidence. And also, believe it or not, I think what gave me the most confidence once I got in the room was my experience directing shows at the Groundlings. Because what I learned was that, you know, the job basically of directing shows at the Groundlings is helping people rewrite their scenes, like giving them notes on their scenes and helping them to To really craft it and improve it and all that and that in a writer's room that's 99 percent of what you're doing is talking about other people's ideas other people's scripts and trying to figure out how to punch them up where it might feel like it's going off track and i had worked that muscle so much at groundlings that it came naturally to me Mm. and once that sort of gelled in my mind that oh i can do this i enjoy doing this i decided to really focus on writers rooms and getting into the writers room and i've been working in writer's rooms pretty much steadily ever since and loving it. So I would say to answer your, the, the, what your question really was, now it's writing. Like I really, mm-hmm. I don't know that I could ever walk away from writing and, and particularly writing for television. Cause I love, cause I what I love about writing for television is the, is the camaraderie of the other writers and bouncing ideas off each other and all of that. I love that a lot. So um, it would be hard to go back to just, you know, waiting in the trailer for them to call you for your scene. Well, it
1: sounds like early on in your career, the the focus was on yourself. Like put me in mm-hmm. stuff, make me the star. And in a writer's mm-hmm. room, that's tough. Cause you're like, my jokes are the best. I'm pitching all this great stuff. These people don't get it. And then it takes the mm-hmm. time to be like, Oh, this is a team sport.
0: Yeah. And also like being able to enjoy helping make the, the piece better. And it, and I don't necessarily get any of the credit for it because you're the writer's room, you're not gonna really get a lot of credit.
1: Where did your love of acting and kind of comedy come from? Was it later in life? Was it always when you were a kid? And
0: When I was a kid from watching TV, I grew up in front of the television and I just knew I wanted to be on TV because <laughs> I, I still love television. And so, you know, when you're a little kid, especially, I grew up in a small town in Illinois. You don't know that there's other jobs. You don't know that there's people like sort of on the other side of the camera doing anything. All I knew was that Fonzie was cool. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be cool like Fonzie and do what Fonzie does. So I wanted to be on TV. Um, So that's where it started. And then the comedy, like, I just was thinking about acting more just in a generic sense as a kid, you know, I wasn't thinking about like drama or comedy, or I didn't even know you would necessarily have to choose. And, uh, but it was when I got to LA and I was um, mostly doing dramatic stuff, plays and, and even on television, I was mostly doing dramas and stuff. But I also also always loved improv. When I auditioned for my first improv group here in LA, I actually didn't know that improv was something that people like, you know, paid money to go and watch people do. I just knew it as a acting exercise in my drama class in like junior high and high school. So I was like, wait, people like you can do a show of improv? <laughs> <laughs> so then I started doing that and and that and I fell in love with, you know, that kind of improv as well. And so I kept doing it and joining different groups and doing sketch and all that, but I was still as an actor, auditioning only for like dr- dramas, no sitcoms, any of that. And when I got to Groundlings though, and got to the Sunday Company in Groundlings, that's when it totally shifted. And I then I only went out for comedies, and nobody wanted to see me for drama. And uh, even though my plan was. Since people are, since I'm already getting out auditioning for dramas, I want people to see that I'm funny too. So if I do groundlings, then I'll get to do both. And it's like, no, (laughs) drama people aren't interested in you now, you're a comedy guy. And that's that's what happened.
1: With enjoying and getting into comedy, did you also uh, try stand up or watch stand comedians? Was there any part in, in the journey going that way?
0: Both, I mean, I grew up a huge fan of Richard Pryor, a huge fan of Eddie Murphy. And um, I wasn't thinking I'd be a standup when I was watching them. I just wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. And I had been acting for a while, but previous to coming to Groundlings, even, I was doing this play um, at the time. And one of the actors in the play was a standup comedian. And so he and I would he would tell me about, you know, being a standup and all that. And, you know, and I always was a fan of it. And I would go and I think I went and watched him a few times. And then I was like, I want to do this. So I did it for a few weeks. That's it. And truly what it came down to, I mean, I didn't love it, but I mean, it was a few weeks in, so I, it wasn't like I was good. But I was planning to stick with it, but I, it really came down to, I, I booked another play. You know, if you're going to do stand-up open mics, you know, on the week, at this time, it's like weekends were really, I think, well, I can't do open mics and do this play. And I felt like I had to choose, are you going to be an actor or are you going to be a stand-up? And so I just went with the acting. In retrospect, as a Black person in comedy, I would advise you to go into stand-up because <laughs> in comedy, in the world of comedy, that's where all the Black comic actors come from In stand-up. And that's where they go looking for the next comic stars in stand-up as opposed to the sketch world, which is mostly, you know, they're looking for, you know, that's where you go when you're looking for white comedy people. Right. But I don't regret it in the sense that I really love doing sketch and improv. I really felt like I found my tribe then. And uh, which I don't think I would have found in stand-up. So,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and coming to the groundlings and performing and writing and stuff, would you feel like, I'm just curious as someone who would not have had this experience, but being a Black man in a predominantly white mm-hmm. area of sketch and improv, which is still kind of an issue today, mm-hmm. going through, did you find that to be a benefit or a downside? It's I feel like there could be like a, oh, great, no one else, is going to do what I do, but then at the same time, you might have, did you bump up against people not getting your humor?
0: That's a good question, Dan, because when I, initially when I went, it never even crossed my mind to think about race at all going to Groundlings. If I had gone to Groundlings and looked at that wall and found out that they'd only ever voted in one Black person in all the years at that, by that point, over 20-some years they've been going, I would have been like, "Well, forget this. is pointless because they're not. They don't want black people." That's but it never even crossed my mind. I didn't even think of it. They, I, you know, I was just blind to those facts. So, um, so that was good for me. It definitely was not a good thing because um, it limits you so much. Like when you when you're doing improv scenes or writing sketches, to be able to tell stories from your culture and your experience, because you you're you the only Black person in the scene or in the sketch or on stage doing the improv, you have to, um, to a certain degree, tamp down your ethnicity because the audience does not know those, in, you know, those deep cuts, so to speak. As soon as, like, when I got in, la- like, my first two levels at Groundlings, I was the only Black person in class but again like i said i wasn't i didn't really notice that it didn't feel like oh why are there no i just did it didn't cross my mind even think about it and when i got to um writer's lab the third level there were i think four or five four black people and i was like shocked and i was excited you know i was just excited um because you know i love doing stuff from the black point of view anyway so with all these people it's just like great you know, so then it, it opens everything up to like the certain types of humor and the doors that open as far as creatively, things that you can tap into. And then after that, I had, you know, I think two black people, two other black people in my, in my advanced. And then I had, I think it was me and one other black person, my first six and my second six months, and this is in Sunday company. So I should say this for people who don't know groundings. But then I got, when I was in Sunday company there were two of us that got voted in and started together. Then in my second six months in Sunday company, there were five of us in the company because they voted in three more. And then in my last six, my third six months, there were, I think, three of us. Yeah, there were three of us. And then main company, it was me. My Rudolph was voted in, but she never performed because she went to SNL immediately after we finished Sunday company and Danielle Gaither. So Danielle, I always had Danielle. So it was always at least two black people. So like a lot of times when black people take classes at groundlings will come to me and say, what's it like being the only, you know, it's hard being the only black. And I go, yeah, I get it. And they go, well, actually I don't really get it. Cause I didn't really have that. <laughs> that, that was not my experience. Now that I think about it, I always had other people I was performing with, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, so that's really, um, great you know because coming after me a lot of black students have not had that experience
1: yeah and it also sounds like in a way you benefited from early on not even thinking about it just being like i'm a student i'm just going through this this is fun and now i feel like yeah. that's another side of that coin where it's like i you people have to be aware and then when you're aware everyone else in the class yeah. were like oh you were the only student of this ethnicity or race or anything to where it's like that's just a lot of pressure when you're trying to do improv.
0: Well, that's good because that's a question I get all the time from students. Black students will come to me and say, well, because I'm the only black student, I don't want to do this kind of character. And I don't want to do that kind of character because I don't want them thinking that that's all I do. And my advice has always been, well, the way I always put it to them is everybody else in that class is using every single tool in their toolbox. They are not denying any aspect to their culture, their history, their life, because they're trying to like, you know, get into the main company, that's their goal. They're trying to, they're using everything they got. And you're gonna take a huge chunk of your life experience and just deny it the entire time you're a student here. You're not gonna do well because you're limited. They, you know, you can, we, you know, like as a person of color, I know the dominant culture's references they don't know all of my culture's references, but I can use the stuff from my culture to differentiate myself from my classmates. It's a bonus. Because that's what everybody else is doing. They're going like, yeah, I can be a white guy in improv, but I still got to bring some stuff that's personal to me, to make me that makes me unique and stand mm-hmm. out. So I have to use that stuff for my, you know, it's like, I don't want people to know that my dad, you know, drank a six pack after work every day. Or something. But if you use that in a scene, that's unique and fun and funny and relatable. So it's the same thing for students of color. I always tell them like, use all of that. That's the stuff that makes you unique and makes you stand out. Because if you're just going to try to use what you know from the dominant culture, it's their culture. They're going to be better at you than that and funnier funnier than mm-hmm. you that. But you can do a little bit of what they do, but they can't even touch what you do. They can't go up there and do their black grandmother character. No. It'll, be very, it'll be very bad for yeah. them. But you can do their grandmother and you can do your grandmother. Mm-hmm. It's like, so it's an advantage.
1: Yeah. Also, I feel like from a pure acting exercise, it's sort of like exercise all those muscles you have. Like, yeah. You like Right now, it's like you have a little bit of choice when you're doing improv scenes of the characters you want to play, but you get sides, you get an audition. Mm-hmm. They might tell you exactly the type of person they want to see. Yeah. And in the safety of improv, you can be like, wow, I've actually played a version of this person where I feel they are fully fleshed out and not yep. just a two-dimensional. Exactly.
0: Thing. And because that's the other thing I always try to make clear to them. I'm not saying play a stereotype. Nobody wants to see that and it's offensive. I'm saying play it real. That's your uncle and that's his, that's, the most authentic version of him that you have it's okay to at least use that as a jumping off point for a character my thing is if you're black and you just literally have no connection to you know whatever the hood or you know or poverty or you know you know s- southern black culture then do not try to fake that you know right. don't try to fake that but pull but there's going to be something unique about your blackness that you can bring to the table Cause I didn't grow up in the hood, you know, I don't know anything about the hood. I've, You know, I spent time in the hood. And one thing I learned is that I'm not hood, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I was poor. I was certainly <laughs> as poor as all those other kids, but I didn't grow up in the in that culture. So I can't sit up here and pretend that I'm from that. And I'm not going to go on stage and pretend that I'm from right, that, you know. But I have an opinion about that, that I can show through my characters sure. and my writer.
1: And speaking of being, prolific writer and actor and creator uh the improv show that jordan created it's called the black version which uh for my money is the best improv show in town anywhere it's incredible uh was that something you've been the idea of it kicking around for a while or was it kind
0: of like lighting a bottle like oh
1: my gosh why haven't i done this sooner
0: previous to doing the live improv show i had done this um youtube series called the black version where i wrote a bunch of like little short scenes from movies, from popular movies, like iconic scenes from iconic movies. I just did the Black version on them and just, you know, all the jokes and whatever, like what if Black people were doing Jerry Maguire? We did those and that was it. And then it went away, like years went, you know, like that was it. And then I moved on with my life. Then years later, I'd always had this idea while I was doing improv that I wanted to do an all-Black improv cast at some point, but I just didn't have enough Black improvisers to put together. Yeah,
1: That's we just discussed. <laughs>
0: Right, so um, one day when I realized that I knew about six or seven black improvisers that were all really good, I was like, well, let me see about getting us all together. So I did, I reached out to the groundlings and got a date. And then I was like, and my thought was, we'll just do like gas show style, short form improv, you know, just with an all black cast, that will be fun. And then I thought, well, if you're just gonna do a bunch of like, you know, workplace improvs with all black, what's the point of everybody being black? you know, um, like you're, if you're not leaning into that somehow. So then I was like, well, what, maybe if we did something long form, I was thinking, and in the gas show, they do these long forms at the end of the gas show, you know, and sometimes they would take a movie and say, oh, we're gonna do our version of Dirty Dancing. But in this one, you know, Jordan is gonna be this character and then we'll do our own version of it. I thought, oh, well, why don't we do long form? And I would just get a movie title of a real movie and then we'll do the black version. And when I, when I when I heard myself say, we'll do the black version, I was like, oh! That's pretty clever. We'll, and I'll call it the black version. That'll be great. But I didn't think, I thought it was great to me, like, oh, this will be fun. It's gonna be easy because everybody gets that concept. We'll do the black version of Star Wars and we're off to the races. So I was excited about the idea because I just knew that would be really funny for me and my friends to do. I didn't think anyone on earth else would care. And so, so when we did the first show and we're backstage waiting to go on and I'll never forget like Kieran Mariama, our director, comes backstage is like, okay guys, it's gonna be a little bit of a wait before the show starts because it's nuts out there of you know, with people trying to get in. And we're like, Really? What? It's an improv show. Why would anyone why would anyone be here? Because I when I first put together, like I got all my friends together I was thinking like, we can get like, you know, the, seat, the theater holds about a hundred seats, a little over a hundred seats. I just want to be at least about 60 or 70 people so that my friends don't come and be like, oh, Jordan invited me to do this show and nobody's here, this is so lame. And I want, cause I want them to have a good time and not feel like, you know, oh, nobody cares about this thing we're doing. So I was really glad. And uh, I heard that the, um, that, you know, a lot of people had shown up to see it. I was shocked and happy and, um And then when we did the show, you know, the show went, I I always knew it would be funny because I knew who the improvisers were. And I knew that the premise was simple enough that we'd be able to just, you know, knock it out of the park. I was still surprised by how the audience reacted to how good it was. Like, you know, and I'm still, you know, that's still something that I'm shocked by, not because of um, any, doubts about the talent of the cast but just the fact that you know you know dan you do improv It's like it's improv who cares? <laughs> you know it's really like a nobody it's like to this day like people will find out about the black version and they're like oh jordan why didn't you tell me i would love you. i can't believe you didn't tell me you had a show and i'm like as a rule i don't invite my friends to improv shows yeah and i don't need my friends to invite me to their improv shows <laughs> and I just assume nobody wants to be invited to an improv show because here's the thing. I know that if I, if you come see it, then you'll love it. But if I say it, you're going to be bummed that I'm invited yeah. you to it. Like, I'm like, hey, guys, I got a show Monday night if you want to come. You're like, oh, do we have to go? Yeah, the,
1: there's power when it's your choice and less when it feels like an obligation.
0: <laughs> yes, especially to it. An, if anybody walked up to me and was like, hey, Jordan, I'm doing an improv show next week, I'm sorry, I got to figure out a way to say no to this, right?
1: As a person who's seen several of the shows, I go, one of the things that's enjoyable, let alone that you're all so talented, is that it it's just done so well where you go like, this is, this is what that movie would be. You know, it's not, it's <laughs> done like, you know, Karen who directs also knows a lot about the movie. So they are, they are plotted out well, they're cast well. It just feels like you as an audience member, like so many improv shows, the fun is like, oh, it's the first time I've ever seeing this, but those shows are like, I feel like I'm actually seeing a live movie. Like, it's like, oh, this is what it
0: is. I love that. Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, uh, I think the m- most magnetic thing about our show for our audiences is a subconscious thing, which is the cast loves doing the show so much. And we all love working together and hanging out with each other and just being with each other so much. And it is... um infectious Mm -hmm. the audience feeds off the fun we're having on stage and the love we have for each other on stage is infectious and the audience really can feel that because there's so much trust there with the cast like you know nobody's showboating nobody's grandstanding nobody's mad because you know they got cut off in the middle of their brilliant idea you know like we're just having fun we just love hanging out with each other and um because that was really the other thing is a big part of the reason i wanted to do the show was because I never got to see my friends, you know, my Black comedy friends, because the truth of the matter is the way this industry is, if one of us gets cast in an improv show or on a TV show or in a movie, our other Black friends are not there because we all audition for that same part. Right. So every once in a while, when we did get to, hang, like, you know, there'd be a gas show at the Groundlings and I'd show up and then Jordan Peele would be there We're like, oh, there's going to be two of us tonight? oh yeah it's on son oh y'all y'all done messed up it's gonna be a very black show tonight you know and I was just thinking like you know so it would be Jordan one night or Gary Anthony Williams another night and I would always get so excited we'd always be excited to see one more and so I just wanted to capture that excitement with you know like in a bigger way by having all of us be able to get together you know and actually like catch up backstage what's going on with you like
1: And it's, I mean, the true adage of like, there's nothing better than getting to work with your friends, like, and getting to do stuff. And you're right, it is infectious. Like, you guys wouldn't do it, of course, if there was no audience, but the feeling is you would, like, there's a feeling of like, we don't, this is kind of for us. We're surprised you paid money. We're surprised you're (laughs) enjoying it, but you're here. But even if you weren't, we'd be making each other laugh just as hard and trying to have so much fun. Like, I think that's a huge thing. And like you said, like, so smart of you to be like, I like hanging out with these people. They're my friends. And unfortunately I don't get to, I'll change that. I will make something where we have to show up. Right. (laughs) And it's like, Oh, it's what a treat.
0: Right. Exactly. Over the years, have you given yourself a definition of success? Oh, for sure. What it was when I started is not the definition I ended up with. It really is loving going to work every day and being able to pay your bills with that money. Like, you know, the two things go hand in hand. Like a lot of people can make a lot of money and hate their job, but to be able to make a living doing what you love. And like, you know, when I go to work every day, even as a writer, I'm excited. I cannot wait to get to work. Can't wait to see it because I'm just going to have fun all day, but, you know, or even when I'm acting on a set, it's like, this is fun. I mean, like, I'm glad they're paying me. I would do it for free in a heartbeat. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to pay me. I'll totally do this for free. I I don't want you to know that during negotiations, but you know, but that is true success because no matter if you're a list or you're a writer on you know the 180th rated TV show, if you're you got to be loving going to work every day, and if you're doing that, then again I say as long as you're able to pay your bills, then. There's nothing better than that. There's no other. There's no level that's going to be like. Oh, I love my job and this is great, but I really wish that I had the number one movie in Hollywood today. You're not going to be any happier than being happy going to work every day.
1: I would say, as someone who's you know known you for a bit now, that's something I've always admired with you and always like looked up to. Is this idea that I always think like, oh, Jordan Black is someone who enjoys this Mm -hmm. fully. Yeah, like there doesn't seem to be a side of like. Oh God, oh, like I have to do this stuff. Like I think you truly go like, this is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing it. It would be strange to go, oh, thanks for giving me what I wanted. I actually don't. I want to, you know, like, I think you have a, a good sense of like who you are, what you want. And then when you get it, there's a, like a appreciation
0: in it. Well, you know, and that was a conscious decision I made a long time ago to enjoy success, meaning it's so easy to shit on everything because, you know, it's the thing of I would never want to be a member of a club that would have me for a member. Mm-hmm. And that's such a, it's so easy to slip into that. And it's so easy to complain about what you don't have. And I, you know, it's a, a couple of things, like I always use, I always use this example with people. Like, let's say, for example, Tom Cruise is sitting around going like, Tom Hanks has two Oscars. I don't have shit. You know what I mean? like. Yeah, we're both named Tom. Right, we're both named Tom. We're both movie stars. But they fucking love him. They gave him two Oscars. Tom Hanks, on the other hand, is going like, every movie Tom Cruise comes out with makes a fucking billion dollars. Because why don't people support my movies? Like, but it's insane. Like, but you and I sitting there and go like, well, that would be insane. I'd kill to have Tom Hanks career or Tom Cruise's. I, you don't have to give me the Oscars to be Tom Cruise and you don't have to give me the box office to be Tom Hanks. I'll take either. But, you know, if you're the type of person who always sees the glasses half empty, that's how you, so it won't matter how successful you get. You will always think that You know, that there'll always be someone doing better than you or there'll always be another brass ring to reach for. And you're not appreciating the 14 brass rings you already have in your hand. And I'll tell you a really, really funny and embarrassing example of that for me is this. I will never forget this. The night that I got the call that I was getting, I was invited to be in the Sunday company. That to this day is still one of the greatest moments of my life, of my career, because I knew my career was going to change getting in the Sunday company because I knew industry would see me. Right. I knew that agents would see me, casting people would see me. And I felt confident in my talent that if they see me, I will work. So when I so from that's the best like phone call of any job I ever got to this day, the most excited I ever was. I remember getting the call at work. I was at work. And Mindy Sterling called me, and she told this back in the day when you had to answer the work phone because there were no cell phones. So, like when I remember the story, I go like, I guess I had to give Mindy my work number. Yeah, I did. I had to give her my (laughs) number. She called me at work and told me, hung up. I was so excited. Told my coworkers they were excited for me. And I'm gonna say, definitely not more than five minutes went by, and this thought entered my mind. I didn't think about it ahead of time. It just came into my mind, and it was. (laughs) And I wasn't even necessarily saying this about myself. It was just something that came into my mind. And I said, um, the Groundlings have really lowered their standards. <laughs> <laughs> that, thought, that thought just popped into my mind, right? And then I went, what, what is that? Jordan, no. The Groundlings standards are just as high as they always were, and they picked you. And you're that good. Like, I remember, like, that thought, like, eh, they're kind of letting it. That was really what it came from. They're kind of letting They're a little easier about who they let in now, clearly. And it was like, no, Jordan, it's just as hard to get in. You gotta be the cream of the crop and you got picked to just own that and live in that. Like, yes, you're that good that you got into Sunday company. You're good enough for Sunday. But the fact that that thought crossed my mind taught me a lesson, like, don't think that way. Mm -hmm. Like if if you book a job, don't say like, well, I guess probably like 12 other people probably turned it down or didn't want it because it's probably lame. Like, no, you auditioned and they liked you. That's the end of the story. It.
1: Well, it's, I mean, that's great of you to re- recognize. I know so many people have that thought and then they keep on the thought and they don't get yeah. rid of the thought. And you kind of realize like, you're more than just your thoughts and feelings. Like thoughts can come and go. And yeah. I also love the fact that you made the conscious choice to enjoy success and to acknowledge success because that's something I find so sad when I see friends who I'm just like, oh, you really can't. You just haven't hit the point where you go, Oh, wow, I've done some good stuff. (laughs) Like, they're just like, nope, I'm not.
0: Well, because you can also become so clueless. Like, you'll be, I'll give you an example. When I was writing for Saturday Night Live and I was miserable because I wanted to be on camera, not in the writer's room. And I remember on tape night one night, I was in one of the actors' dressing rooms, right? This actor was upset because they hadn't been in any sketches that night. They're like, oh, this sucks. I didn't do, I wasn't in any sketches tonight. And I remember sitting there going like, I'd fucking kill to just go out and wave to the audience at the end of the show. And that's that's my whole show. I fucking kill. So in my mind, I was like, you're so clueless. Who are you talking to? Don't tell me this. And there's that thing of like, and then, but it also taught me something like, because I used to, it made me think about my friends who had not, who I started out with, who had not achieved the level of success that I was at at that point that I wasn't appreciating. And they're still like, you know, waiting tables or whatever, trying to make it. I'm like, Jordan, you need to, don't fucking complain yeah. to these people. Like, that's insane. They're looking at you like, fucking Jordan. Like He's a hack. I could do what he does. <laughs> they think he's talented. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I was like, so don't complain about, there's always like, there's always somebody doing better than you, but there's also somebody doing worse than you. Mm-hmm. And you gotta think about that person who's looking at you and going like, oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. but yeah, you have to, because here's the thing. There's so much about this industry that is heartbreaking, you know, that is so crushing. That when something good comes, celebrate. Over your career, have you worked on
1: riding the highs and riding the lows? Kind of you talked about enjoying the highs, but what do you do? Do you have a personal mantra, personal things you do in the times where you're like, I'm not working as much, which definitely happens to
0: all of us. Well, you know, my mother helped me with this early, early on. When I first came to LA and I had nothing going on and she told me, enjoy this downtime. Once you start working, you're going to be working forever. You're going to be working so hard. You're not going to have time to do anything else. And so just enjoy this time that you have. Just enjoy laying around, sleeping in, like enjoy that because that will not last. And so I, That just clicked. And I was like, yes, I'm going to enjoy this because it also, her confidence in me to say someday you will be busy made me feel like, well, if she's saying that, she must see something in me that makes her believe that's true. So then I'm going to choose to see that and believe that's true. So yes, I'm going to enjoy my downtime. So even now when I'm in between jobs and it's down, I go, well, enjoy sleeping. You will get another job. You will be working and you will not get enough sleep and you won't have time to hang out with your friends and you'll be busy. So use this time to, you know, go see two movies today, you know, whatever it is. And um, and that's what I do with that. Now, don't get me wrong. Every time I'm on a show and it's ending, I'm like, fuck. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, oh God. Help me not to worry too much about, I, you know, every time this happens, I worry I'll never work again. Then I work again and it's fine. So I'm, I'm confident I'll work again, but it'd be nice if the offer came like really fast. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that, but, but I don't let it get me too down. You know, it'll, you, can, you, know you start to get those doubts in your mind, but then I start pushing back against them. I start reminding myself like, you've worked a lot. So clearly you must have some talent. People aren't just hiring you by mistake. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> so you know so just trust that you know people think you're talented and that the opportunities will come. And also, you know, when I'm when I feel like I really am getting no bites, I go write a script, man. When I have downtime and I'm writing a script, it makes me at least believe that I'm working on something that I could make, you know, like mean like, well, this will be my next project. I'm going to write this and hmm. you know, I'm going to take this out and pitch it and I'm going to sell it and we'll make it. So that makes me feel like I'm busy doing something for my career. Mm-hmm. You know, like if nobody calls, I have this script. Right. It's hard. The downtime can be hard. So you, I, I try to fill it up with, you know, initially just some self-care, you know, like seeing some movies, hanging out, watching TV, binging on stuff and things I don't get to do when I'm working a lot. And then if once, I, if once that runs out and I'm still not working, then I say, okay, well, work write a screenplay, you know, um, call Jimmy uh, Fowley and say, hey, let's do a, let's write another web series and just shoot something, you know, or whatever it is. Like, because, like, you know, like when I would work with uh, my friend Jimmy Fowley, those are, I did all this stuff during downtime. I didn't have a job. I wasn't making money doing those like web series and things, but it felt active. It felt like this is my career. I'm doing my career. I'm living my dream. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just not making money off of this project. But, I'm doing something that you don't know what it might lead to. Right. And that always makes you feel hopeful that I I have a project I'm working on. Who knows where it could lead? And a lot of times they do lead to things. So it's all about like, you know, just doing stuff and with that downtime, being creative during your downtime.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really kind of powerful that your mom gave you those words of wisdom of Mm -hmm. enjoy it because you'll be busy because I'm Mm -hmm. sure other parents would be like, well, this is when you find another job, (laughs) like this is when you do something else with your life. So Mm
0: -hmm. I
1: find, yeah, just having that kind of internal monologue of being like, okay, I've worked before, therefore I'll work again. Mm -hmm. And working on your own stuff also, I feel is in a career that's so out of your hands. So much Mm -hmm. of it is other people have to sign off on you that I find when I am writing or doing something creative, like even if I'm like, most of the time, it doesn't lead to anything, but I can go like, at least I have one thing that like I have full say on, like I get to decide the process and everything.
0: And it's important to have that. It really, because that's the fun part of being creative, you know, because once you, once you do sell it, then it's, you know, um, collaboration. So, which is great. I'm a big believer in collaboration, but it is always collaboration and compromise, you know, so... Mm -hmm that moment when it's just you and your computer and your writing, what you like and what makes you laugh, that's going to be the most creatively rewarding time.
1: And also if you claim to be creative, but don't like to create, that's like, yeah, a it's, it's a problem. Yeah. It's one of those things where at times I've like had to go like, and you haven't written in a while. Yeah, You like to write, you like to create, you tell people
0: yeah. you're a writer and creator, yeah. Yeah. it's
1: time to do things.
0: Exactly. <laughs> it's like I was saying to a friend of mine yesterday, he's a writer. And I was saying like, when I have friends who are like, oh, I, I read a screenplay of theirs, and they're like, I want to get this made, I'm trying to do this, and I met with this person, I met with that person. And then I see them three or four years later, and they're saying like, yeah, here's what's going on with that script. And I'm still, and I'm like, you haven't written other scripts since then? Like, don't fall in love with that one script. Maybe it'll get made, maybe it won't. But in those three or four years, you could have written three or four more scripts that maybe wouldn't take as long to get bought or whatever. You know what I mean? Or get yeah. signed up, make it. Like, don't go like, oh, I have this script. It's my script. It's my, this is my Citizen Kane. Yeah. There is no better script th- in me than this. Like, you got to, don't fall so in love with your work that you think this is your, that's, I see that with a lot of young writers, new writers. They'll have the script they wrote in college and that they are determined to get made. And I'm like, great, be determined to get that made, but write five or six more that you're also determined. Because one of them make it made, then you can go and get that one and just make it because you're somebody now who can get whatever they want made.
1: Yeah. I had a professor in college who gave me, like he was like a screenwriting class and I'll never forget, he was like, screenwriting is not an art, it is a craft. You have to do it all the time. Your first one might be good, but it probably won't, but your thousands might might get to a place where it's like, wow, you actually have a script here. And I was just like, okay, I am just going to just churn things out because the Mm -hmm. faster I like don't make this stuff precious, the better off I am to yeah. be like, oh well, you like that one? Great! I actually have two more that are even better. Like, it puts to me, I go like, you're putting a lot of pressure on your one thing,
0: right? And it's a and it is a numbers game because your one thing could be much better written and a better story, more interesting, more original than your thing that somebody says, well, we want to make we want to make this one though, we want to make your thing that seems a lot like Alien. Yeah, you know what I mean? And you're like, yeah, but this thing is. Like it's rich and it's epic and it's like yeah, but we don't have a market for that. We have a market for this terrible script you wrote. Yeah, you know. And it's like, and then that that might go and make a billion dollars, and then you get to make your epic. Exactly. Or you get into the business, and enough people let you know, even at this stage, they don't want to make that. And you go like, oh, I guess the script isn't as good as I thought it was. That would happen to me at Groundlings all the time, where. I'd write a sketch and a director would be like, ah pass. And I'm like, oh, whatever, this is great. And then you put up for another director and they go, ah pass. And I go, Oh, it's not good.
1: <laughs> Speaking of someone coming in telling you something's not good, this is the time in the show where uh, famed insult comic Raz Clifford likes to join in.
0: I love Raz. Yeah,
1: he uh, you know likes to take the guests down a peg. So we're gonna we're gonna bring Raz out here. All right, come on, <laughs> come on out, Raz. <laughs> Whoa. Hey folks, it's Raz Clifford. Oh my God. We're really scraping the bottom of the barrel to the podcast, aren't we? It's Jordan Blech. Oh, Jordan. I've watched you perform many times and each time I demanded my money back. This was hard to do folks because a lot of the shows were free. (laughs) Jordan hails from Kankakee, Illinois. And we all know that Kankakee translates the town of pure trash people who will go out into the world and make things worse. Very fitting. But seriously, Jordan, I've enjoyed your comedy over the years. I enjoy using it as an example of what I don't find funny. Boom, you got razzed. <laughs> when you see me out and about, please act like you don't know me, because that's what I'll do to you. Bye. Bye, Raz. Well, that guy, he's so mean. He is.
0: And he mispronounced my last name, and I feel like he did on purpose. It did
1: feel like it was plotted
0: yeah right like yeah. you know you you know how to say black it's not
1: a hard last name you know that's it's
0: not at all come on he said that word before yes but he mm-hmm. you know but he did nail what kankakee means i was surprised
1: <laughs> yeah he, he looked it up <laughs> <laughs> what would your i guess thought process be on the on the concept of being rich and or famous like is it something that you've been like yep i would be hmm. so happy with all that or are you kind of like
0: mm, Oh, I mean, here's the thing. I would be happy with it in the sense that it means that I have the freedom creatively to do the things I want to do. That I definitely, I would love to reach a level in my career where I can, you know, like, oh, I have an idea for a show that I know I'll be able to make because of my past success. Mm -hmm. Um, Or an idea for a movie that I know I'll be able to make because of my past success. So I wouldn't want rich, and I want to be able to pay my bills, but, you know, like there was this thing saying like, basically... Once you make 75 grand a year in this country, you don't need any more money. You don't get any happier past that. And I do believe that's true. Um, So I don't need to be rich for rich sake. And I definitely don't need to be famous for fame's sake. Like fame is to me not enjoyable. You know, just the small amount that I have um, experienced for myself, you know, from people seeing me on TV and stuff. You, it doesn't, you don't know, most of the time the people, it doesn't bring out the best in people. It's always people. It brings out a lot of weirdos, I guess is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like who want to connect with you. It's like, it's not like, oh, I'm famous. And so now Eddie Murphy wants to have coffee with me. You know, that happens to some people, but that's not, that's the fun part of fame. But the part about the weirdos is the majority of it, which is why these people stay in their houses and why they fly on private jets because I'm sure Beyonce is like, you know, it's bad for the environment, private jet. But if I fly United, even first class, oh, that is Beyonce out there. Beyonce, God, you got to take a picture with me because I got to show my mama because she bought all your out. You know, it's just like, yeah, but I'm a person and you got to respect myself. So fame to me is not, you know, I don't think that most people who are famous enjoy it Except in the rare occasions where they're able to use it because, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're eloping and my, I don't have a wedding gown, so I can just call Vera Wang and ask her real quick to whip me up something like that. But those moments are few and far between that it is good in that way. And mm-hmm. I remember one time I just say this real quick. I remember one time being at a movie theater and the movie ended. And I don't know why I thought this. You know, I've been in L.A. a long time, so sometimes I just run into people I know. Or especially from groundlings, people who've seen me in shows at Groundlings. And I remember I had this thought. I was sitting in the movie in and I stood up and I was like, Oh God, I hope nobody recognizes me. I just want like I, I just want to get to my car and go home. And then I was like, Jordan, you want to be an actor, and you're saying you're not even famous. You know what I mean? Like, you're not famous or anything. And you're sitting there and saying you hope nobody here recognizes you. That's <laughs> I'm not sure you know what uh the job description yeah.
1: is. that is a that could happen. That is a byproduct. Now, do you have any stories? I always like to ask my um, guests of stories you would tell on a late night show as a
0: guest. When I was writing for Saturday Night Live, you would sit during run through, you would sit under the bleachers next to Lauren Michaels and you'd watch your scene on the monitor and Lauren would give you notes for your scene. And he never would look, at me. like I'm sure he looked at other writers. I was a new writer. I was a first-year writer. So he wouldn't look at me or whoever I was writing. He would give the notes to like the producers across me, like, this needs to change, that, do this. And I'm, they're just going, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm scrimmed down the notes, because they're not doing anything. Like There's no reason for them not to give me the notes, right? And I remember one time, uh, Jason Sudeikis and I had written up a, a, a sketch starring Justin Timberlake. It was his first time hosting. The sketch is, during run-through, sketch is killing. It's killing. So Jason and I are over the moon. We're like, this is our second or third week on the show, maybe. So we're, like, sitting there going, like, yes. And Lauren turns to us and says, he goes, it's working. And I go, like, this, yeah, like, with my face, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, it's working off of his charm. And I'm as I'm going, yeah, 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 I'm going, like, oh, that's not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> it's working off of his charm.
1: When you got the note about the sketch with Justin Timberlake working off of his charm, were you, like, oh, it is. Or were you like, no, no, it's working because it's a good sketch. Like, were you able like did the note feel?
0: Lauren's notes were always on the money. Like mm-hmm. always, always, always on the money. And he was probably, I mean, it was a sketch. We were doing a punk parody, and Justin had been punked. He was in the first season of punked. He got right. punked. It was a famous, you know, <laughs> episode. He cried in it. He would he wanted to get his revenge on Ashton. So he was playing Ashton and he was making Ashton look stupid. So he was really going for it. And so, yeah, he was selling it for sure. But we're two new writers. Like, let us have this. And he wouldn't. He wasn't going to let us have it. He wasn't going to go, oh, okay, what's well, working? Seems the audience seems to be laughing a lot. So, okay, good job, guys. He, he wanted us to know it's not the writing. It's just that Justin is so likable.
1: Jordan, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Is there anything uh, for the listeners to keep their eyes out for you?
0: Watch The Wonder Years this season, please. It's on uh, ABC I think it's eight thirty, seven thirty Central. Double check that. And it's also, you know, on Hulu. So please, I think it's a fantastic show. Um, and I don't say that about every show I've written on or acted on. Uh, this feels like a really special, great show. Really funny and poignant, if I can say that without sounding douchey.
1: Yeah. No, I just watched the trailer for it. It looks incredible. It's great cast, great writing, and yeah. a real nice way to reboot the show. Doesn't yeah. feel just like, oh, they're just redoing the one. It feels like a, a real strong point of view and take. Yeah. And it seems like it's got a lot of heart and humor.
0: Yeah, I definitely think it's its own show for sure.
1: But again, Jordan, thanks for being on the show. And audience, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dana Racker. And this has been Almost, Almost Famous. <laughs>